0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 7 together. This week we're starting a new series, and it's called Holy Reflections. And we're going to be talking about God's design for singleness, sex, and relationships. Uh, This week what we're going to do is kind of lay a foundation for the rest of what's to come. Uh, This will give us both a starting point and a guiding premise for us to use as we navigate these issues, uh, sometimes contentious issues. Uh, The truth is there are few, if any, areas of human existence that have suffered the corruption and deception of sin like singleness, sex, and relationships. This is not a new phenomenon. From the time that sin entered the world through the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, we have seen the perversion and the desacralizing of these things. Tonight we're going to start in the book of 2 Corinthians. And this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in a city called Corinth. Corinth is notorious uh, throughout history among ancient cities for being a party town, and a poster child for sexual deviancy. Um, Common equivalent, just think of like um, Girls Gone Wild, Greece edition. It's pretty much what was going on in Corinth most of the time. Uh, For those of you that don't know what that means, you just got an extra jewel in your crown because of your holiness and separation from the world. So congratulations to you. Uh, Corinth was home to the temple of Aphrodite. She was the Greek goddess of romance, beauty, and pleasure. You may recognize her name as the root for the word aphrodisiac. Aphrodite was supposedly married to a male god, but frequently cheated on him with other Greek gods and human men. This is according to the myths of the Greeks. Her temple was filled with prostitutes who worshipped by having ritual sex with strangers. This is the context where these Corinthian Christians were living and trying to follow the teachings of Jesus. Paul addresses some of these deceptions and perversions surrounding these issues in a more obvious and direct way elsewhere in his letters to the Corinthians. The verses that we're about to read set up a principle for us to faithfully and biblically interpret how we approach many subjects as disciples of King Jesus. And this is going to be a trail marker for us as we traverse these issues together. So what we lay down tonight is going to help us sift through the rest as we get kind of down into the nitty-gritty and more detailed uh, as we go on through this series, okay? So now uh, let's read together uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to read, uh, start just verses 7 through 11. We'll take this a piece at a time, okay? But if the ministry of death... In letters engraved on stones, came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains in its glory. So here Paul is referencing the book of Exodus. And in that book we see the account of the giving of the Ten Commandments. This is what Paul is talking about. He's referencing back to that story to draw a principle from it to teach this Corinthian church something. Moses went up to the top of Mount Sinai and approached the glorious presence of God that had come and rested down upon that mountain. In that day, there were earthquakes and smoke, thunder, and lightning. Uh, It was was pretty glorious. Paul calls the law here the ministry of death. Interesting. And that's not because the law was flawed or bad, It's it's because we were. We are told elsewhere that the law served as a tutor to teach us how perfect and holy God is and how perfect and holy we are not. And so the law in that, Paul describes as having a ministry of death because it brings an indictment upon us. Even though the law brought with it a guilty verdict on humanity, and it showed us that the wages of sin is death, even then, in, in, from that point in God's story of redemption, even at that point he was pointing in many ways already To his plan of redemption and the gift of grace that would lead to eternal life even there i think we get this confused sometimes the law and the spirit are not enemies the spirit of god empowers the people of god to be able to fulfill the law of god of course not perfectly but we have no chance whatsoever to fulfill it at all Because even the good things we do are wretched because our motives are poisoned before the Spirit comes and changes our hearts, right? The law did have glory, but it was a concealed and a fading glory. And it pales in comparison to the exceeding and eternal glory revealed by the Spirit of God. And that glory is embodied by our Savior King, Jesus Christ. Let's read verses 12 and 13. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. This is interesting. Many people assume, reading the story in Exodus, that the the only reason for the veil over the face of Moses was because the Israelites could not handle the radiance of God's glory that shone from him. For those of you that maybe aren't familiar with the story, so Moses goes to the top of the mountain. God gives him the Ten Commandments. He doesn't get face to face with God because that would have killed him, but he's, he's enough in the presence of the glory of God that he come, when he comes down from the mountain, his, his face is, is literally glowing. He's, it's like he's gone nuclear, okay? Uh, it's like he, he got some of that uh, Ninja Turtle ooze up on the top of the mountain, right? And he's glowing a little bit, okay? So that's, that's, that's kind of the picture. So he's coming down from the mountain. And, and the Bible tells us that he had to veil his face. Some of it was that the Israelites were just kind of terrified of the fact that here comes nuclear Moses, right? Like, is this the first comic book? What's about to happen? Is dude about to shoot lightning out of his fingers? We don't know. So some of that was there. But the, also there's this, this other part that, that Paul is able to reveal to us by uh, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that, that some of it had to do with that it was to conceal the fact that the residual glory from that mountaintop encounter with the presence of God was fading away. And so not only was it to protect them and to kind of stop people from freaking, about, freaking out about the radiance, but also somewhere in Moses' motivation, there was this idea that he didn't want them to see that, yes, he was with God. Yes, there was this glorious encounter, but that that glory was fading That's going to matter more as we go on and understand this argument Paul's building, okay? And remember who he's talking to. Remember who Pastor Paul is teaching here. He's trying to teach these Corinthian Christians in that crazy, over-sexualized context how it is to follow Christ. And these principles absolutely apply, and it's going to make more sense as we keep going, okay? Now we're in verse 14 and 15. It says, but their minds were hardened... For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. This is a reference, this veil that still lies over their heart. or he, Paul is talking in his day, he says, even to this day when Moses is read. So at that point, he, Paul is talking about... Uh the fact that you know Jesus at this point has come, He's lived a perfect life, He's died in our place, He's risen from the grave, He's shown Himself to a bunch of people. There's ample proof that He indeed is the Son of God, the Messiah, the the, the Savior that everyone was awaiting. And yet there's, there's still these people that even when Moses is read, there's this veil over their heart, and that isn't lifted until they turn to Christ. So uh that's that's who he's referencing there. Um the reality is that uh, these people clung to the law. They were unable to comprehend that it was not the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. They were, they were gripping on to this, this, this glorious thing that happened on Mount Sinai. I mean, that was pretty cool. God showed up, shook a mountain, filled it with smoke and clouds, and a guy came down with two stone tablets carved by God himself. Pretty significant event, Right? And and it was hard for them to believe there was anything more. Like, God came and visited us in such a glorious fashion. How is it there could be anything else? And And they're clinging to that. And part of this had to do with the fact that they didn't understand this was just a part. This giving of the law was just a piece of the narrative and the story that God was unfolding as far as his plan of redemption. Many could not or would not acknowledge the lesson that the law was meant to teach. They either could not or would not. Many were deceived and believed that they could keep the law and their righteousness would be derived from their own works. A bunch of people hadn't caught yet the fact that the law was never meant to be the vehicle for salvation. What it was meant to do was simply point us to our desperate need for a savior. Because when the law was given, if if somebody is introspective and humble enough, they'll understand, I'm not going to keep that perfectly. And that's how the law serves as a tutor. Uh, Other translations will say a schoolmaster that leads us to this place of understanding that we need God's help. I'm not going to be able to do this on my own. There's a bunch of people then and now that didn't believe that was the case. They believed their own works were going to stack it up and be enough for them. Uh, Paul describes this deception "...this clinging to the law as a veil that stops them from being able to receive the righteousness offered as a free gift through faith in Christ." He calls it a veil. This is the the example, this is the word picture he's giving us to understand. Here's what we need to know. Yes, a veil remained over the hearts and minds of those that were listening to the reading of Moses in Paul's day, but we also need to understand that this veil, this dark veil, this veil that keeps us separated from the truth of God, that veil remains today. And the insolence of those who are darkened in their understanding has only grown. Today, this veil of deception is so thick that people do not even attempt to keep the law that the God who created us gave us. Instead, many now believe that God does not even exist. Or if he does, that we are able to dictate to him what we will and won't do. Many people now have determined and believe their law unto themselves. This veil is so thick and blocks the vision of many so completely That there is little resemblance left in their life of the boundaries that God has established for our good and for his glory. This is how we can have in our day so many marriages marked by selfishness and conceit rather than selfless love and service. This is how in our day we can have so many of those marriages and those covenants ending in divorce, tearing apart hearts and families. This is how we have a culture so fixated upon sex and sexuality that we have apps for our phones where someone can swipe left or right based on physical attraction alone in an effort to locate a suitable person with which to commit fornication. What am I talking about? I'm giving you evidence that the thick veil exists today that blocks and blinds the hearts and minds of people to the truth of God. What's the evidence for that, Pastor Vince? I'm giving it to you. We have broken homes and broken marriages and then the ones that aren't broke, half of those, there's no joy in them because pride and selfishness has taken over. We have apps for our phones designed to set us up and make it easier for us to sin against the holy law of God. This is how we have So, this veil still exists. This is how we have so many broken people walking around with a hollowed out cavity where their heart belongs because they have desperately pursued love and satisfaction from romantic relationships and been disappointed every single time. This is how we have a whole segment of our population suffering from constant insecurity and emotional torment because they have been sold and have bought the lie that to be single and set apart for the Lord, even for a season, means they are unloved or unlovable. This dark veil of deception is draped over the hearts and minds of so many people, and the downward spiral of humanity as a result is nothing short of cataclysmic. The effects are easy to see. The ripples and the damage. If one is to look with eyes that are empowered by the Spirit of God, not covered over with this veil of darkness, you can see the desperation that this departure from God's law, especially regarding these issues we're discussing, it always brings pain. It always brings torment. I know for some of you, this is not theory. I know for some of you, you are firsthand witness to the pain that comes in departing from God's good and perfect law in regard to these things. And what I want to say to you today is don't mistake my tone. When I think about the effects of sin in the world, when I think about the fact that so many people that God desperately cares for are deceived by this age-old veil of lies, it does, it arises in me a righteous anger, but that anger is not pointed at you or your past or any of, of the sins or failings that, that you ha- may have committed or may have been committed against you in regards to these things. I want you to understand there is no, none condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There is open, welcome arms of love. He's willing to receive repentance if it's needed. And he's, he's got all the power you need to gather up your brokenness and to put you back together. So please understand, God loves you. But please also understand, we need, to, we need to not be dazzled by this world. We need to not be pulled into this foolishness. We need to not... I heard a comment recently in regards to things like this. Well, you know, it seems like the culture has just become more accepting of that. This was in the midst of a conversation about something despicable that was on TV. And, and uh, I just felt my heart break. That that's the, the line of reasoning. Well, if the culture at large has begun to accept this, well, what are we going to do? It's almost, like, it's almost like there's this belief that if, if the majority is going to become this tide that turns against the truth and the goodness and the love that is displayed in the law of God, then what are you going to do, man? Grab a floaty and ride. No. The answer is no. Because we love God too much and we love people too much to just get in that current and float with it. We're not going to do it. We're going to stand for the truth. The truth is there is hope. We must see the deceived and destitute among us, and we need to weep. And we must let our hearts be broken for them. But out of our broken hearts needs to also rise a desperate desire to share with them the one and only hope for all mankind. What is that hope? What is that one singular hope, may we ask? How can people with such a dark and terrible veil of deception draped over them, how could somebody that far gone, how could somebody that's been that deceived, how can they ever find deliverance? Well, by God's grace and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, even though Paul lays out for us this this case that we're in trouble, He doesn't just leave us there. Let's read verse 16 together. Is there hope? That's the question. And where is it found if there is? I'm going to read 15 again just to line it up. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Is it not true, friends, that this veil of deception still lays over the minds and heart of so many? They don't see the truth and the goodness of the law of God. They don't see that the parameters and the boundaries he's given us is because of his great love for us. That veil still exists, and I would say it's darker and thicker than it's ever been. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Yes! There is hope. And yes, it is found in one singular place. And that place is in a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. Every single time a person turns to the Lord, that veil... The same way when Christ took that last breath upon the cross and that veil that used to separate man from God in the temple, it rent from top to bottom in the very same way when a person comes to God, the veil that covered their eyes and their heart and their mind and kept them bound and deceived and enslaved to sin and deception. It is rent in two and they are set free by the power of Christ. Every single time. Whenever someone comes to the Lord, that veil is taken away. How is that possible? It's because Jesus changes everything, right? This isn't, this isn't behavior modification. This isn't just some, some guru long ago that had cool things to say. This is the very God of the universe coming and taking on flesh, living a perfect life, dying in our place for our sins, and then rising from the grave. And Ephesians tells us, That the same power that brought Christ up out of the grave, imagine the power of God to bring a dead man back to life, to roll that stone away that he strolls up out of the tomb. That power is at work within us. That is how veils of darkness and deception get torn in half. That is how people get set free from years of believing lies about themselves, lies about other people, and lies about the way the world really works. It is the power of God alone. We're not going to behavior modify people out of their brokenness. They need the power of God. They need deliverance, and that is found in one place alone, and that's faith in the finished work of Christ. Only through Jesus is this veil of deception going to be destroyed. Only through Jesus are people going to be set free. We have to live in this duality, friends. Look at, think about this with me. We need both of these things to be true. We, for us, we need to be able to hold them in tension and understand the world is broken. People are desperate. People are depressed. People are downtrodden. They are broken, and they are suffering the effects of generations and now thousands of years of lies being compounded upon lies to the point where the sexual deviancy in the days of Corinth now looks like child's play. We need to understand that, yes, the earth And all of its inhabitants are groaning and and they are moaning and yearning for the return of Christ so that all that has gone wrong because of sin can be made right. We need to understand, yes, the brokenness exists. We need to understand that this veil is draped over so many people and that they are enslaved. So we need to understand and we need to be broken about that. But at the very same time, though our hearts are broken for the lost, though our hearts are broken for the enslaved... We need to also, at the same time, be bearers of hope. We are a part of God's plan of getting those people that are stuck set free. He's included us in what he's doing. We have a part to play in people finding their way out of slavery to sin and the darkness that accompanies it. We have a part to play in lifting that veil up off of people's eyes. God has allowed us to be a part of what he's doing. He's about setting people free. Let's look at it together. Verses 17 and 18 are going to put that out for us. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. These verses, and others like this, this isn't the only place that Paul uses similar language to describe how it is God is working in us and through us as a part of his redemptive plans in the earth, but when when he's using this language, this explains for us, this helps us understand why Jesus could say... You remember, there's this this seeming issue, right, because there's times in Jesus' ministry where he said, I am the light of the world, didn't he? That's easy to understand. I get that. That's very obvious. Yes, you are, sir. You are the light of the world. We're broken and busted. You came in. You showed us how to live. You died in our place. You rose from the grave, broke the neck of sin and death. Yes, sir, you're the light of the world. Here's where it gets confusing. Other places, he said, you are the light of the world. Okay, so what what I can't do is instantly go to, oh, well, perhaps Jesus was confused on one of those two days. No, this is the perfect, sinless son of God. He wasn't confused ever. He's never been. Okay, so that means if he said it, he meant it. Okay, so now we have to deal with this. I am the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Hmm, now what do we do? Yes, here's how that looks. In the same way that a candle without flame set to it is, is but a wax, a ball of wax and a wick, a human without the Spirit of God indwelling them has no light of their own. But when the Spirit of God comes and sets a flame, the Spirit of God inside of us, we become like that candle. We are the wax, He is the flame. And so, yes, he is the light of the world. He is the source of the power. And yes, we are the light of the world. We carry that light into the, every dark place possible. He said, into every corner, go into every nation, go into all the world, carry this light, carry this hope. Sometimes it seems to me he could have found better candles. Anybody relate to that? Some of you wonder how good of a candle you are some days, Right? Sometimes we're not letting this little light of mine shine, right? Sometimes we are putting it under a bushel or a basket or whatever else because I'm having a bad day or I don't feel like it or, you know, take my shoes off and count those two, right? Like we've all got these reasons, these issues to where we can forget that when we become children of God, when we become the redeemed of God, when we we are set free by the power of God, it's not just for us. That a light is set to that wick and now we become not only enjoying the freedom of the Spirit of God, but also bearers of that Spirit, okay? And so, and, 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 and the language here is, is interesting. Let's, let's keep looking at it. So that's, this is how Jesus is the light of the world and we also are the light of the world. We understand that through this idea. I just used a candle and flame. Paul uses this idea of the fact that, uh, but we all with unveiled face... We don't have to veil our face like Moses. For more reasons than one, we'll get to the other one here in a minute. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just, uh, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Okay, so uh, when, here's how this looks. When we live in freedom provided by the Spirit, we reflect the glory of God to the world. Drawing them into an eternal hope and showing them they need not live under the darkness of that veil any longer. You see, when God comes and inhabits us, when the Spirit of God comes and makes us his dwelling place, we are the New Testament tabernacle. That's why we're that's why we're so intentional here, and we teach our kids that. This place we come to, this building is not the church. That the service time, the slot of time where we gather with God's people, that's not church. The church is the people of God. And it's so important for them to understand that. It's important for us to understand that. Because we, there, there is no place now where God's spirit dwells. He dwells in us, his people. And, and, and it's, it, it matters so much. That's how we reflect God's glory to the world. Because now we are indwelt with that, with that same, with that same glory that Moses encountered on the top of the mountain. Are you with me? Are you understanding what I'm talking about here? The same glory, the power of God that burst forth from the tomb that day. The Spirit of God dwells in us, and that's why it says when we look into this mirror and this. If you understand, mirrors in that day, they weren't glass. You didn't get quite the image we get today. They definitely weren't set up like in the department store where it makes you look skinny, so you buy that shirt right? It was polished metal, super polished metal, and so you're only going to get so good of a reflection out of that. And it's part of what Paul's thinking here in saying this is you're looking in this mirror that he's describing, you're going to see the image of the glory of God. You're going to see the transformation as he's continuing to mold you into his image, but it's going to be skewed a bit. It's going to be imperfect. So we're not going to look into the mirror and see the perfect image of the glory of God, but we are going to be able to see The fact that the Spirit of God is continuing this process of drawing us closer to Him, conforming us to His image, making us more and more like Him. And when we walk that out, when we live that out, when we walk as those candles into a dark world, we provide for people hope and we show them by the power of the Spirit of God they need not be enslaved to their own urges, to the lies that they believe, to whatever that veil of darkness looks like for them that keeps them trapped, that keeps them far from God. It keeps them on this damaging cycle of over and over again repeating the same things that leads to more brokenness and leads to more torment. You don't have to live that way. And we are the bearers of that hope. Praise God. We reflect the glory of God into the world. We do things differently to the glory of God. When we are content and full of joy in singleness, and we are concerned with holiness when pursuing relationships, and when we serve and sacrifice like Jesus in our marriages, and when we, we, and when we treat sex as a wedding gift from God instead of like it is a God, then we are holy reflections to the world of the glory of God and the goodness of his laws. When we do things differently for the glory of God and to the glory of God and for our good, we end up being holy reflections as described here in verse 18, that we with unveiled face, we get to behold in the mirror the glory of the Lord and get to see this constant beautiful journey of being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's interesting here that we see the contrast of the fading external glory of Moses and the never-fading internal glory of the Spirit. Let's be honest. Some of you were like, okay, I came to this thing because uh, they said we were going to be talking about relationships and singleness and sex, and this guy is talking about Moses on a mountain and veils on faces. This is not what I thought I was getting into. Hold on a second. Here, there's, a reason, there's a reason why the Apostle Paul is teaching this right here to a group of Christians trying to follow Jesus in a totally sexualized and, 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 and saturated culture. There's a reason why he's leading them to this principle. There's a reason why this is going to be a part of them being able to fulfill the mission of God in the context they were in, okay? Remember, they walk out of their house, what's on top of the hill? Aphrodite's prostitution temple, okay? That's the context they live in. Paul's trying to teach them how to live in that context and understand. So there's a a contrast here that we need to understand. The fading glory of of the external meeting of God and Moses on the mountain, right? So Moses meets God on the mountain, right? He he goes nuclear, um, and and then he comes down, and he's got a veil the face, right? Most of the time we think about the fact that that's because he's just trying not to freak everybody out with his new, you know, look, right? Because now he's glowing Moses. But it, it's not just that. It's not just that his radiance because of this encounter with God was terrifying everybody. Paul tells us also there's this idea that, that somehow and i don't know if it was because moses thought he would lose clout or he he didn't want people to think that god had left them or he, i don't know what all of that is but ultimately for some reason part of the reason that veil stayed on long term is he didn't want the israelites to see that, that that glory from that encounter with the living god upon mount sinai that that glory was fading And here's part of why Paul takes us through all this. And this is part of why he ends up talking about us being holy reflections of the image of God at the end. It's part of why he talks about what's going on in this unfading glory. Because here's what he's saying. He's saying, Moses encountered the glory of God on the mountain. And yes, he came down nuclear Moses. But here's what's different. We, the reason we get to look at the mirror with unveiled face, the reason we don't have to veil our faces either in shame or fear is because the glory that is working in us is an eternal glory. It's never going to leave. It's not just a one time encounter. And that's what the language of glory to glory is about. It's to let you know you don't have to worry. God's not leaving. You don't need to hide your face from anybody because he's going to take you from glory to glory to glory. He's going to persevere with you. He's going to walk with you. He's going to stay with you. He's going to keep working. On you, He's going to chastise you sometimes like a good father deals with a son, but he's going to continue working on you and making you look like him. And so you don't need to have a veiled face. Every single time you go to that mirror, you don't need to fear, because the, the living spirit of God now dwells in you. And there's a glory, just like Moses had, that's supposed to come out and emanate from us and prove to the people of the world that this God we serve is real. And you know what it looks like? You know what it looks like? I don't think it looks like nuclear Moses. Paul is not saying here that if you're a Christian, now your face is going to glow, right? I mean, if, <laughs> if we could sell that, this, we wouldn't, there wouldn't be a hard part dealing with church attendance, right? Because, I mean, we'd put the cosmetics industry out of business. Come in here, say this prayer, girl, your face would be glowing forever, okay? So come on in, right? We'd have the pitch and we could get it done. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about the same radiance that comes from that external just being in that that glory cloud of God like Moses was. Here's what it looks like to walk in this world with the eternal glory of God. When you're a single person and you're not depressed and broken every single day because you've somehow believed this lie that singleness means you are either unloved or unlovable. When you're able to be single and set apart for God and yet full of joy... In the midst of it, the glory of God radiates like a holy reflection to the world. Because here's my question, friend is that normal? Is it normal for single people to be happy in this culture that tells them you're only somebody if you've got somebody? Is it normal? No, it's glorious and it's beautiful and it preaches the truth of God. That is the Spirit of God working in somebody and that glory shines forth. How else? When somebody's pursuing a relationship with somebody, when they don't put their physical desires and urges in front of God's holiness, when two people come together with the idea of, hey, maybe God would allow us to have a marriage covenant together, and they put God's holiness and God's glory ahead of their own selfish desires, when they treat each other's purity as something to be held high instead of taken, when they push each other towards Jesus instead of away from Jesus... When relationships are done the way that God has laid out a design for, guess what? The glory of God shines forth out of that and declares to the world, there's something different here. When a married couple doesn't fall into all the stereotypes, the old ball and chain, Right when 10, 20, 30 years their love is growing because Christ is working in the midst of their marriage, because Christ is the strong cornerstone upon which that marriage is built, when, when, it's only, when, when love and service only increases, when passion for each other only increases. And let me ask you something. Is that normal? Is that what the sitcoms on TV are telling you marriage is like? Or are most of them telling you you should run from marriage because it's going to be cool until the honeymoon's over and then it's going to be a big bummer forever? That's not true. And yet there's a veil that lays over the hearts and minds of so many people, believing either they're going to run from marriage because they've believed that lie or their parents believe that lie and they watch their parents believe that lie, or they're in a marriage and they're just like, meh, this is how it is. We don't do that. You see, when we live differently, especially in these things, these very highly visible things, we act as holy reflections of the power of the Spirit of God at work in our lives. A Christ-centered, love-filled, passionate, service-oriented marriage where two people are coming to it and staying in it because A, they've made a covenant before God, and because B, they truly really love each other because they're letting the Spirit of God continually cultivate that love between them, when they serve each other continually, when it's not about what do I need, but it's about what do you need, and both people are doing that, people see that. The glory of God is reflected in that, and it's different than what's going on everywhere else. And thus, a holy reflection shines out to the world, and the Spirit of God is working this thing to where we end up from glory to glory, growing in grace and growing in our ability to reflect to the world this truth. God is real, there's hope, and you don't have to live in darkness, you don't have to live in pain, you don't have to live in constant torture, no matter what of those stations you find yourself in, praise God, praise God that there's hope because of Christ, praise God that there's hope because his spirit inhabits us, praise God it's not up to us, praise God that we don't believe what so many have believed that we don't have that veil over our heart and eyes that makes us think that doing all of this is up to us. Friends, how do we do when we try to keep God's law by ourselves? Thumbs up or thumbs down? It's a big thumbs down. That was an easy multiple choice test. You had a 50% chance. Most of you nailed it. I'm, re- I'm feeling good. Praise God. I'm glad we don't believe that. I'm glad we don't believe we have to try to make our marriages great, and I'm glad we have a motivation higher than just personal satisfaction or personal fulfillment, because let's be honest, some days, I'm I'm, going to say this word, some days you just feel like being a butthead, don't you, to your spouse, don't you? You just wake up, and you've determined that day, you know what, I I feel this way, and somebody, somebody's going to feel it. You're here. You know what I mean? It's like... (laughs) And you're wretched for it, and you know it. Like we we don't go into that. It's it's terrible <laughs> that you ever do that. But we do. We just and and and, and the, the terrible tragedy is we we target those that are close to us and we think won't leave, right? Because because we're wretched and, and we're sinful. But by God's grace, man, we don't we we don't have to we don't have to just white knuckle it those days, right? We we have and, and, and what, we, what we have is a motivation that is deeper and farther than what we feel on a given or certain day because the reality is personal satisfaction or fulfillment or whatever words you want to call it that's not enough motivation some days to act right true or not true some days you're like I don't care about fulfillment or any of that other stuff I want to be mean because <laughs> I just feel like it stop but also <laughs> Guys, there's more there's more on the line here than your personal satisfaction on a daily basis. Right? It's not just about whether or not I feel great about my marriage today. It has there's so much more on the line. Am I going to be a reflection of the glory and the goodness and the power of God in the world and the way I treat my wife today or not? That changes the game. All of a sudden, my thought process isn't so consumed with, how do I feel about this and such and certain so? All of a sudden, I realize, man, Christ purchased me with perfect, sinless blood. He's my king now. He's my master now. I used to have a master. His name was Sin and Death, and he was terrible. And I lived in darkness, and I had no hope at all. And I was broken to the deepest parts of the inside of me, hopeless. And he was a terrible master. And then this other master came along, and he had the currency. He had had what it took to buy me from that other guy and say, come and be mine. I'm not my own. And his glory is now my highest concern. And that dictates the way we do everything. That's why this sermon series is called Holy Reflections, because listen, we're going to talk about singleness, but at the end of the day, and we're going to get into specifics about it, and we're going to mind the Bible for truths to help us keep our minds right and principles to use, at the end of the day, it's going to come down to this. In your singleness, is your highest concern the glory of God or not? Some of you, in pursuing a relationship with somebody, looking towards marriage, is your pursuit... Is what's going on in that relationship is your highest concern in the midst of that the glory of God or not? In what you do with sex and sexuality, is your highest concern the glory of God in those things or not? In your marriage, is God's glory your highest concern? Listen, the beauty is, because I realize this sounds like all duty and no fun. When, you mean all of my life has to be for God's glory? When do I get to be for me? That's the problem and the lie that we don't understand. When, When all of our life and all of our motivations are oriented towards the glory of God, we get the bonus package of actual joy because we're doing what we were made to do. It goes together. And the reason there's so much brokenness and such a lack of joy is because of that disconnection right there. A lack of belief that orienting all of what I do Towards the glory of God, so that not only just, just because he's worthy of that period, but also because he's commissioned us to be these mirrors reflecting his holiness and goodness to the world, right? So love for God motivates these things. Love for people should motivate these things. And all of what we do in every season of life, in every part of life, has to be run through the grid of these ideas, has to be run through the grid of these principles, or else we will stray. Or else we will end up in sin. And then we will end up in pain. Every time. Let me read this to you. 1 Corinthians 8.6. Okay, so what was that, 1 Corinthians? This is another part of Paul's exhortation to this Corinthian church dealing with the problems they were dealing with. Okay? He says this, Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. There's so much that could have been said from Pastor Paul to the Corinthian church, and of course he says more than this, and he does get into details, and I promise you we're going to do that. But what's going to guide this entire discussion and all of this series through these difficult issues is that idea. There is one God, and we were made for him. There is one Lord, his name is Jesus Christ, and we exist through him. Without him, we would have no hope. There'd be no reason for a discussion. We'd all be shackled to our own sinful tendencies and to the desires of of the evil taskmaster. But we've been made for him, and we exist through him. And everything that we do, all that we are, is for his glory. So in any of the things we're going to talk about, If all of the rest of the details that we're going to unpack and unfold throughout this series, if those were to be lost, if you had this one thing, friend, you could navigate these issues with surety. Is the next thing I'm going to do or say in regards to these things, is this for the glory of God? Will this lead to the glory of God or not? And if you do the thing that leads to the glory of God, it will also lead to your joy. will also lead to less pain first motivation should be that god deserves this glory the bonus is that when he gets glorified it's also good for us he's worthy of that is he not he is i'm just going to read it one more time because it's good Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Friends, if that was the lens that we forced ourselves to view all of these issues, we would be much less prone to falling into temptation and deception. May we be a people who rejoice in the goodness of the law, but never depend on our obedience to it. May we be a people who live free from the tyranny of the veil of sin and death and deception. And may we be a people who live every part of our lives empowered by the Spirit as holy reflections of the glory and goodness of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord God, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that we don't have to be like Moses. I thank you that we don't have to veil our face. I thank you, God, that you have, you have taken away <laughs> the terrible fear that used to come with thinking about being in your holy presence. There was a time when no man could enter your presence without fear of death, but I thank you that you've removed that fear, that the veil that used to separate Man from God in the temple was torn. There's no need for it anymore. That because of Jesus Christ, we are invited to come boldly to the throne of God. We are welcomed now as children. I thank you, God, that we don't have to veil our face because there is no fear now. I thank you that we are welcomed in your presence. I thank you, God, we don't have to veil our face because we have no fear of the glory departing. I thank you, Lord, that what you're doing in us, you've promised is a process that you're taking us from glory to glory that you're going to continue to grow us and lead us and guide us and shape us and you're working on us and you're making it so that when we look into that mirror that we are not a reflection of ourselves in the past or even ourselves in the present but we're in the present but we're able to see this holy reflection this image being formed where we look more and more like you God, may we not just stare into that mirror, but may we turn it out, reflect that beautiful reflection to the world. May the way that we live and the way that we speak, may the way that we Encounter these issues of sexuality and singleness and marriage, relationships, God. May the way that we conduct ourselves in these things, may those be testaments of the truth of your word. May those be undeniable declarations to the world around us that there is a living spirit of God working inside of us. Praise God for the opportunity to be a holy reflection to the world. Lord, we know, we know in and of ourselves this reflection would be ghastly. This reflection would be terrible. It would be of no benefit to anyone, but because you have come and you've changed us, you've begun with the heart, You've taken the heart of stone that was veiled, that couldn't understand, this heart of stone that depended on ourselves, and you've taken that out and you've replaced it with a heart of flesh. And you're working on us, God. You're shaping us and you're molding us. You've come and dwelt in us. And you have come and inhabited us with the very same power that worked in raising you up from the grave. God, please, not just in these issues, not just when it comes to relationships and singleness and all the things surrounding that, God, not just in these things, but Lord, please help us in all things, in all times, in all seasons, in every interaction with every person. May we understand and may we keep this in mind that our commission from you is to be holy reflections of your glory and goodness to the world. God, may we live in obedience. May we live in holiness, empowered by your Spirit so that we will have joy, so that you will be glorified, and so the world will know that you're good. Thank you for letting us be a part of it. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you, God, for working on us. Thank you for being patient in the process. We love you so much, and we worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio.